welcome to Shelter Cove Online. We are so glad that you're joining us today for this sermon. We hope and pray that this message encourages you, that you learn something, that you enjoy it. But more than that, we just pray that God would move in your life, that he would reveal some more of himself to you today. If you would like to respond to this message in any way, you can contact us at sheltercovelive.com. Have an amazing rest of your day. Hey, Shelter Cove, how are we? I missed you guys, man. I missed you. You look good today. I wasn't sure how you're going to look, but you look all right. If you have your Bibles, grab them. John chapter four. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have some ushers come and pass out a Bible to you. Uh, we will also have the verses up on the screen. Uh, we're going to be posted up in John four today. While you're turning there, if I haven't had the chance to meet you or, or I'm a new face to you, let me introduce myself. My name is Chad. Back in May of this year, me and my family, we moved from Modesto out to a suburb of Memphis, Tennessee. And uh, we've been out there for some time now for the last four months or so. Uh, leading up to that point, we had been involved here at the church for years. My wife's been a part of this church since it began, since this place was meeting in a barn. And I'm going on uh, about 13 years here involved in Shelter Cove. And one of the things that I had told Jeremy is that uh, this place is gonna be one of the hardest goodbyes I have to say. And, and he kind of came back and said, well, what do you think about maybe coming out every once in a while to still speak and teach and say hi to everyone? And I said, dude, if you're serious, I'm down like Chinatown. I will be on the next flight. I will be there. And here we are. We, we made it happen and looking forward to still being able to do this. Now, if you are just joining us, we're in a, don't, don't clap. You haven't even heard the sermon yet. You don't even know if it's good. Don't clap. This could be a horrible sermon. Uh, if you're just joining us, John 4, uh, we're, we're in a series called Follow. And, and here's the heartbeat of this series. We wanted to ask the question, what does it mean to authentically follow Jesus? We do not wanna be a church where people just come and they go through like religious mechanical motions. Are you following me on that? Like we don't wanna be a place where you come and check church off the to-do list, but you don't know Jesus. That is a fail. That is a loss. We wanna be a church where people are genuinely, authentically coming to know Christ, coming to know his ways, his sweet forgiveness and following him. Cause that's the invitation Jesus lays out in the Bible. Follow me. I'm gonna lead you somewhere. Come with me. So we've been teasing out all the different facets of what that means. Last week, Pastor Ed gave a great sermon on repentance. I would highly commend that sermon to you. Minister to my own heart. Today, we have what I think is one of the most difficult topics that a pastor can preach on, obedience. And I'll tell you why this is a hard topic to preach on. Just by a show of hands, raise your hands if this is true for you. If you find the commands of scripture easy and natural to follow, would you put your hand up in the air? Oh my goodness, no one has their hands up. Look at that. If I was sitting in your seat, I would have my hand down too. So as a fellow struggler with you, I've got to teach my own heart and teach your heart how to practice something that doesn't come naturally to us. That's a tough task. And to make things even more difficult, if I soft step this topic, if I, if I just go too gentle on this, I'm worried I'm going to push you towards what the Bible calls licentiousness. That's a fancy word for using God's grace as a license to sin. That's the Romans 6 argument. Should we keep sinning so that grace may increase? And what's Paul say? By no means. So we got to avoid that trap. 
but I'm also worried if I beat you up for the next 30 minutes, I mean, I go heavy handed old school Baptist preacher on you for the next 30 some odd minutes. I'm worried I'm gonna create, I'm gonna create one of two groups, either a bunch of self-righteous Pharisees, real type A, you're real self-disciplined, real self-motivated. You will keep the rules by gosh, if it kills you. And in the process, you become proud. You deny your need for a savior because you can save yourself. Or I put a weight onto your soul that, that you can't bear up under. It will destroy your soul. Like that's what happened to me for years. When I was early on in my faith, young in my faith, I was under the lie that Jesus loves me if I'm obeying the rules. I'm only acceptable if I'm obeying the rules. Now I can tell you, I knew in my brain, Jesus forgives me of my sin, but my heart didn't actually believe that. I operated as if he only loves me if I keep the rules. And you know what this created? A perpetual cycle of shame and guilt because I couldn't keep the rules. I was screwing up left and right all over the place. And what that made me think is that God is constantly displeased with me. He is constantly upset with me. Up in heaven with his little checklist, like, oh, he blew that one, screwed that one up. Man, this kid's a mess, screwed that one up. And what did that do to my heart? It made me hide from him. It made me run from him. I couldn't, how could I show my face to him? I've, I've sinned so many times, broken so many promises. And, and here's where it got even worse. I've learned humans are not equipped to handle shame and guilt. We will do anything we can to get rid of it. And so for me, I went back to the very sin that was causing the shame and guilt to begin with to try and medicate the shame and guilt away. So I feel shame, I feel hiding from the Lord, guilt. Let's go back to the drinking, let's go back to the drugs, let's go back to the porn, back to the sex, try and medicate that pain away. Try and numb that pain. And all it did was just create more. So today, one struggler to some fellow strugglers, how do we practice something we're not naturally good at and avoid licentiousness, but avoid legalism as well? Piece of cake, huh? John 4 will, will do a good service to us. If you have any kind of church background, you'll know this text. Usually what we do is we stand and read, but this is a longer passage. I'm gonna give your feet and your ankles a break, all right? Let me pray. We're gonna ask the Lord for help and we'll get to work in John 4. Jesus, thank you for my friends and my family here. God, I love this church. I love these people. And I pray, Spirit of God, you would teach our hearts now. I'm praying for two things specifically. Help us to see the full scope of forgiveness you've given to us and help us, God. Secondly, to see how obedience fits in light of the lavish forgiveness you've given us. Uh, may we be people rooted in the gospel and compelled by your spirit to deeper holiness, to deeper righteousness. And I, I need your help in that, God. I can't, I can't do that in my own soul and I especially can't do it in theirs. So meet us here, teach us here, God. I, I, we just need you in your name, amen. John 4, Jesus is becoming increasingly popular. The Pharisees are directing their attention instead of of John the Baptist, and they're now directing their attention to Jesus. Here's how the text begins in John 4. 
Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Now look at four. And he had to pass through Samaria. That's a really interesting verse. That's really, really interesting because the majority of Jews, 99.999% of Jews never set foot in Samaria. So Judea is in the South, Galilee's up North, Samaria is right in the middle. It would be like going from Modesto up to Sacramento and to get there, you got to pass through Stockton. Now here's what happens. Most Jews would cross the River Jordan off to the east, go up the east side of the River Jordan, bypassing Stockton altogether, and then crossing back into Galilee. Jesus says, I have to go to Samaria. I have to. Why did the Jews hate the Samaritans so much? They saw them as a bunch of corrupt half-breeds. Like literally, there were Jews in the north and they intermarried with Assyrians and they adopted a bunch of the Assyrian religious practices. When the Jews in the south tried to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, the Samaritans tried to stop them. There's some deep animosity between these two. Like Dodgers and Giants fans kind of animosity between these two. Jesus, I have to go to Samaria. Watch what happens next. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. That verse right there could be an entire sermon. I don't have time. I wish I had time, man. I wish I had another 50 minutes to pull everything out of that. Here's what you need to know. The very God who spoke the universe into existence. He spoke the stars into existence, subjects himself to the heat and the sapping effect of the sun in the midday. He felt firsthand what it's like to be us. You just need to know that about our God. He felt our sorrows. He felt our temptations. He felt our weaknesses, not like reading it in a textbook firsthand. I gotta keep going. I'll, I'll get distracted there. It was about the sixth hour. That means noon. It's like noontime. Seven, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? I love this verse. Are you greater than our father, Jacob? I wish Jesus would have been like, yeah, I am the God of Jacob. But he's not like me. He plays it cool. He's more reserved. And here's what he says or she goes on, he gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and livestock. Now watch 13. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. So Jesus is hanging out by the well. Here comes this woman. Hey, can you give me a drink of water? And she is flabbergasted. 
how are you a Jewish man asking me, a Samaritan woman, for water? You guys don't even talk to Samaritan men, much less talk to a Samaritan woman. And now you want me to hand you this cup, which by Jewish law would make you ceremonially unclean. What are you doing? And Jesus goes, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me for water. He's so wise here. He's so gracious how he deals with this woman. And she goes, you don't even have a cup. You don't even have a bucket. Where are you gonna get water from? And then Jesus says, you try to get your water from this well, you're gonna be thirsty. Question for you, is Jesus just talking about physical thirst? Because if he's talking about just physical thirst, this is the most no duh, pointless verse in all of the Bible. Because if it's just thirst, he said, if you drink water, you'll be thirsty again. Okay, thank you. He's using the physical experience of thirst to try to bridge the gap to a deeper spiritual reality. Here it is in your notes. Spiritually speaking, every one of us is thirsty. All of us. If you've got a pulse, your soul is thirsty for something beyond yourself. That's why all of us are looking for something to fulfill us. If we were honest with ourselves, and, and that's a big if, but if we were honest, a lot of the pursuits, a lot of what we're doing in life is to distract or to numb us from the gnawing fact that we don't feel complete and satisfied inside. And Jesus goes, yeah, you're thirsty. All Jesus is doing here is pointing out something King Solomon said a thousand years earlier. My boy Solomon, favorite book of the Bible, Ecclesiastes. Here's what he says, Ecclesiastes 3.11. Also, he being God has put eternity into man's heart. You have in your soul by God's design, an eternal longing. You have a longing in your soul that only eternity can fulfill. Look right at me. That's why everything in this world loses its appeal after some time. You get a new truck, you get a new boat, you get a new job, you get a new car, a new house, you build that nice pool, you get a new relationship, more money. All of that is cool in the beginning, but then doesn't it fade? Doesn't the luster and the appeal of it fade? Stop me if I'm lying. Stop me. It's because your soul craves the eternal. C.S. Lewis famously said, if I find in myself a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical conclusion is I am meant for another world. That's what Jesus is saying. You've got a thirst in your soul and you're drinking water that will never quench it. So what kind of water was she drinking? Let's find out. Pick it up with me here in 13. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What a beautiful verse. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So she's still thinking physical. She's like, dude, it's, Israel, 12 o'clock, middle of the day. It is hot out here. I understand it's been pretty hot in Modesto the last couple of days. I timed the visit perfect. <laughs> She's like, I'm sick of coming out here and sweating and slugging it out, trying to get all this water. Give me water so I don't have to come out here. 
Jesus is gonna just get right down to the heart of the issue now, 16. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And I wish I could have been a fly on that well to see that woman's face. Because some random stranger just aired out her deepest, darkest sin. But in typical Jesus fashion, he's so gentle, he's so gracious, he's clear, but man, he's so gentle how he does this. And Jesus is saying to her daughter, you have a thirst in your soul and you keep turning to men, to relationships, to sex, to satisfy this desire in you and, and it's not gonna work. You'll be thirsty. Here's how this fits into our topic today. In your notes, sin, we could use the word disobedience if we want. Sin is a result of us trying to quench our thirst apart from God this woman fell victim to the same mistake we all make. We feel this longing in our soul. We feel this craving in our soul, but because you and I are products of the fall in Genesis three, but because you and I have inherited a sinful nature from Adam and Eve, that sinful nature makes us rebellious to God's good ways. And it makes us receptive to Satan's lies. We think in our minds, I know how to quench this thirst better than God does. We're receptive to Satan's lies. He whispers to us, hey, hey, I think God is trying to keep from you. Hey, I think God is depriving you of, of joy, of pleasure. It's the same lie he told Eve, look at the fruit, look how it sparkles. Look how delicious that must taste. Why would a good God keep that from you? you won't die. God's insecure. God is afraid. He knows that if you eat of it, you'll be like him. You'll realize your need is not for him, but you could do it yourself. You don't need God. You know how all of life works better. I mean, you flunked the sixth grade, but you know how life works better. <laughs> you see the lie? This is where disobedience comes in. We feel the longing, that longing's there. It's there by God's design. We just screw it up by going, okay, I can solve the longing on my own. I don't need him. And that's what the woman's doing. She's looking to sex and relationships to quench this thirst. Jesus is going, it's not gonna work. And listen, Jesus is not against, he's not against sex and relationships. He made those things. They just make crummy gods. Now, the question becomes, if that water doesn't satisfy, what water does satisfy? Anytime a pastor asks you a question like that, the answer is always Jesus, <laughs> always. It's always Jesus in some way or another. And that's the case today in your notes, Jesus. Jesus offers water that truly quenches our thirst. Here's what he says in verse 14. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 
So I, I kind of think in pictures and, and the way that I'm thinking of this, picture Jesus as this like source, this river, um, just a, a flowing source of water. And, and the way I picture this is almost like three cups that get filled up. You have a cup here, a cup here, and a cup here. There's more aspects to this. There's more aspects to Jesus being our living water, but, but we'll just focus on three today. These three cups fill up and these three cups, they get poured out into like different aspects of our life. They hydrate, they, they revive different parts of our soul. They're all from the same source, all from Christ, but they kind of, they kind of hit different parts of the soul. So this first cup here in your notes is forgiveness. When Jesus says, I give you living water, part of this is forgiveness of our sin. Christ fixes the shame and the guilt that we carry. He fixes it. Now, I'm gonna be straight with you. This point right here, I've prayed more about this point than any other point in my notes because this point scares me more than any other point. I'm afraid that you're gonna miss it altogether. That's what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid you're gonna commit the same mistake that I made. You're gonna hear forgiveness and be like, yep, heard that a million times, got it. What do you got next, pastor? That's what I'm worried about. I'm worried you know this intellectually, but your soul is not taking confidence in the forgiveness of Christ. You could say this, you could repeat the right answer, but your soul is still living like your behavior, your actions make you right before God. I'm worried that disconnect is happening. And so I've been trying to think, how do I convey this in a way that get past the walls, that gets past the blocks, like the firewalls that we put up in our mind and soul. And so I'll, I'll try this. There's a story in the gospel of Luke. Jesus tells this wonderful parable, this punk little kid, he comes to his dad and he tells the dad, dad, I hate living at home with you. You're a terrible dad. I'm sick of all the chores I have. I'm sick of all the stuff you make me do. Cash out your 401k. I want my money. I want my inheritance. I'm off to Vegas. And the dad does it. The dad is heartbroken, but he gives the kid his inheritance and the kid takes off and he goes to Vegas and he goes wild. Wild. He's buying shots for everyone at the bar. He's buying bottle service. He's doing drugs in the bathroom. He's got lap dances, escorts. He is wild and out. Crazy, self-indulgent living. until he runs out of money. And all his friends that he was partying with, everyone he was buying shots for, they evaporate. He can't find a job now. The economy downturns. Nobody's hiring. In fact, people are laying off. The kid is hungover, malnourished, dirty, can't find a job anywhere. And there's this beautiful verse in that passage. It says, the son came to himself. He comes to himself. He realizes, what am I doing? What am I doing here? My dad's servants live better than me. So he decides, he, he decides I will go home and I'll cut a deal with my dad. I will come back and say, dad, I'm not worthy to be your son, but let me be your servant. I will work my way back into your good graces. Let me come back, start me at the bottom of the pay scale and I'll work my way back into your good graces. So he heads home, he's rehearsing this in his mind. He's practicing this little business deal. He's gonna present to the dad and, and off in the distance, he sees a figure that looks like his dad. He's running at him, but it's not like an angry run. It's, it's a happy run. 
And the dad's waving his hands, kind of a dorky dad wave. And he's got a big grin on his face and, and he can hear his name being shouted with joy down the road. And the son freezes. He didn't even know what to do. And here comes the dad full steam ahead, grabs his son, wraps his arms around him and squeezes him. Starts kissing him. The son smells terrible. He's skinny, malnourished. The son is just wrapped up in his dad's arms. And the son tries. He tries to go, dad, I'm sorry. I blew it. I'm an idiot. Please let me just start as a servant. And the dad doesn't hear a word of it. No, 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 son, quiet. Servants, get the finest robes, get the finest shoes, get my rings, kill the fattened calf, break out the good wine. Tonight, we celebrate, my son is home. He was dead and now he was, he's alive, he's lost, but now he's found. And the trouble is you can hear that and go, cool, that's good for the prodigal son, but that's not how he works with me. I've got to earn it. You're the prodigal son. You're the point of that parable. He's trying to show you this is how God responds to you, to your hypocrisy, to your failings. Mine too. He's got your face. He's got my face in mind when he tells this story. All of our failures, all of our hypocrisy. God is trying to show us, this is how I respond. When you come to me, humble, seeking forgiveness. I'm not standing back with my arms crossed indignant. I'm not standing back going, well, show me, uh, show me six months of obedience, then maybe we'll talk about forgiveness. It's not how I respond. I run to you. I lavish upon you what you do not deserve. I restore you to the position of son. You are not my servant, you are my son. And look at me, if you miss this, you miss Christianity. You will never love Jesus until you taste and until you relish his forgiveness. And the Bible's clear. Jesus said, if you love me, you will what? You will obey me. It is impossible to love Christ until you see the scope, the depth, the breadth of his forgiveness. You'll, you'll never love him. You'll work for him like he's a boss, but you'll never love him. And I'm all for the Lordship of Christ. He is Lord, yes and amen. I'll bow at his feet, 100%. But as soon as I get up on my feet, I'm gonna hug the mess out of him because he saved me. Because I was that prodigal son. Because I was the one that rebelled and he met me with such lavish grace. So there's cup one, forgiveness. It just waters the soul in its real own unique way. Cup two is what we'll call transformation. Jesus in a couple chapters later, John seven, he almost repeats John four verbatim, but he throws this little caveat in. He throws this little change in there. And I want you to see it here. John seven, on the last day of the feast, the great day. So everybody's there. It's a big party. Everyone's there. Jesus stood up and cried out. He's not whispering. He's not just telling one or two of his disciples. The whole crowd hears. All these people, they silence because they can hear Jesus shouting. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. 
Jesus says here, come to me, drink, and I will give you not a list of to do's and to don'ts. I'm not gonna give you that. I'm going to give you a person. I'm going to give you the third person of the Trinity, almighty, eternal, holy, powerful. It's the same power that resurrected Christ's dead body. I'm gonna give you that. And that spirit of God is going to transform your heart. That spirit of God is gonna give you new desires, new cravings, you will start to increase in your delight of righteousness and increase in your disgust of sin. That is a work of the spirit of God in you. There's this great prophecy in, it's in Ezekiel 47 and it's in Revelation 22. It's like two sides of the same coin. And, and what we see is that in the new heaven and in the new earth, this is a real reality. This is a physical reality that's coming from the throne of God, water is going to come out and it will go out of Jerusalem down into the Dead Sea. I don't know if you've seen the Dead Sea, been to the Dead Sea. It is 30 times saltier than the ocean. Nothing lives in the Dead Sea. Hence the name, the Dead Sea. The surrounding topography, it looks like Mars. It's rock. There's not even shrub brush that grows here. It looks like Mars. And this prophecy tells the water that will come out from the throne will go down into the Dead Sea and it will make this water fresh again. Fish are gonna return to it. Birds will return to this. The surrounding topography changes. Palm trees bloom. Fruit trees are gonna bloom. Fishermen start to pull fish out of this lake, out of this river. All because the water from God flowed into it and started changing it. And I've, I've just thought, what a beautiful picture what the spirit does in our hearts this arid, dry, hard, sun-baked, unresponsive, inhospitable environment has water that pours into it and, and makes it alive again. Makes it like this little desert oasis. Now, I always wanna to try to be honest with you. This process of transformation is slow. It takes way longer than any Christian would care to admit. It's slow you stumble, you fail all the time, but rest assured, over time, God will change fundamentally who you are. God is not interested in a slightly better version of yourself. He wants you completely different, filled with the spirit. Cup of forgiveness, radically forgiven, executive level pardon from sin, indwelling transformation of the spirit, and then the third cup, a renewed outlook on obedience. Part of what God will teach you in this transformative process um, is that obedience is not the roadblock to joy. It is the pathway to joy. When I was younger, here, here's what I thought. I thought obedience is God keeping me from the stuff that's fun. God's kind of this crusty old man. He doesn't really know how much fun it is to go smoke weed and drink and party. He doesn't really understand. He's like just an out of touch old man. And so he's crusty and old and wants to stop me from having fun. That's how I viewed obedience. What you will learn as the spirit of God grows you is that obedience is actually the way to fulfillment, to joy, to the deepest pleasures God has to offer because I always wanna lay before you, 
like you realize God is the one that created like marriage and sex. That was his idea. It wasn't like he was up in heaven and, and Gabriel came to him and was like, hey, you're not gonna believe what those humans are doing down there. They're doing what? They, that's not what I made that for. That didn't happen. God's like, no, no, no. My son, my daughter, I have good things for you. I know how sex works best. Keep it in these boundaries and you will flourish. I know how work functions. I designed it. Work was my idea. It's one of the first things we see about God. He, he works. So listen, here's how works. Here's how work functions. This is the best way to do it. On and on we could go. Here's how your money works. Money is not man's idea. God has a lot to say on that. The more we submit to the commands of scripture, the more joy we walk in. And I wanna be straight up with you. Submission, obedience, it almost always involves delayed gratification in the moment. Almost always. It almost always in the moment means self-denial. Almost always. However, that self-denial, that delayed gratification on the back end produces deep, long, rich joy. Because you have your choice. You can pick short-term fleeting pleasure or you can pick long, rich, deep joy. And obedience is the pathway to joy, not the roadblock. So this has all been kind of up in the sky, kind of theological. Let me try to bring this down to the ground now. Practically speaking, what are some ways we can grow, we can advance in our obedience? Number one, stoke your affections for Jesus. What happens in the Christian life is we oftentimes get tied up on, man, I just gotta, I got this one little behavior in my life. I just gotta stop this one little thing. I keep doing this one little thing. I just gotta stop this thing. And I wonder what would happen if we go, yes, that's there. And to kill that, I'm gonna do the things that make me love Christ more. Because Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. And I have found in my own personal walk, my own personal walk with the Lord, what kills sin off way better than my own self-effort is falling deeper in love with Christ. Because now that sin looks ridiculous. I see, I see behind it. I see the, the deceit and I see how empty and vacuous it is because I've tasted something so much better because I've fallen in love with something so much better. So I wonder what it would look like for you to, to go, yes, that's there, but I wanna do certain things. I wanna be diligent. I wanna practice. It's not legalism to say, I'm gonna be diligent about certain practices, certain spiritual disciplines. So for me, that's reading the scriptures daily. It's really good godly music, which is hard to find. And it's, I love listening to pastors that preach the word of God with skill and zeal. Those things stir my affections. They make me love him more. I'm not doing those things to try to get into heaven. That's secured by the forgiveness of Christ. I mean, there's times I read the Bible. I, I don't, it's mundane. I'll read something. I don't even understand what I just read. It's okay. Because I know that the word of God is profitable for training and righteousness. So I'm gonna be in that book. It's not legalistic to say, I'm gonna devote myself to it. Second of all, here in your notes, confession and repentance. 
Ed did a great job on this last week. I don't need to unpack this. Here's all I'll say. Mold, sin is like mold. It, it grows in dark, unventilated areas. You wanna kill sin off? Confession and repentance is one of your best weapons. And here's a prayer that I've been uh, praying before the Lord. Lord, help me to find in you what I'm looking for in blank. What I'm looking for in, in the money and approval and social media likes and, and the drugs and alcohol and the sex, whatever it is, I'm, I'm looking for something in this sin, but it's not quenching my thirst. Help me to find it in you. And then finally, find your group. Humans are weird creatures. We learn by osmosis. We learn by being around people. You become who you hang out with. So look at me, look right at me. You think you're gonna grow in your obedience by continuing to hang out with sinful fools? You're deceiving yourself. On the seat backs in front of you, there's a little QR code. You can scan that QR code. Not right now, because my feelings will be hurt. I'll, I'll think you weren't listening. You aren't listening. You can scan that and it'll take you right to our church page where we've got all kinds of information, men's groups, women's groups, groups for teenagers, where you can serve in the church. I just became a part of a new church out in Tennessee. One of the first things me and my wife did, we got to figure out where we can serve and get plugged in because I got to be around people who are serious about the things of the Lord. I will go wayward if I don't have brothers and sisters around me that are spurring me on to righteousness. Let's pray. God, thank you for these people. Thank you for these men and women. Lord, I pray for your spirit to bless them and teach them. I pray, God, that, that the lavish forgiveness of Christ is clear. And I pray that obedience as well is clear. Um, you are calling us to obey because it's what leads us into life. It's not what saves us, but it's what leads us into life. So may we go deeper in our obedience. May we pursue you deeper, surrender more. And I pray this in Christ's name, amen.